I'm as scared as I have ever been about American democracy. I am more scared now than I was on January 6th or November 3rd or in the months leading up to November 3rd. Everyone I know who works in the election space is worried. And election officials I talk to are worried. They are under stress, threats, worse than ever before. We've got to stop viewing elections as a game we play to see who wins, and the reward for winning is they get to govern for a couple of years. That's not what elections are. When more people vote and the person you voted for lost, that's good. That's legitimizing American democracy. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. In their ruling last week, the Supreme Court said that two provisions of an Arizona voting law that restrict how ballots can be cast do not violate the Voting Rights Act, the landmark piece of legislation intended to protect racial minorities from discrimination in voting laws and regulations. This looks like another major blow to the Voting Rights Act, so I wanted to understand how this ruling is going to impact the anti-democracy laws we've seen in state legislatures across the country and what steps Congress needs to take to protect the right to vote. I'm joined today by David Becker, David is the executive director and founder of the Center for Election Innovation and Research, a CBS News contributor, and he was also a senior trial attorney at the Department of Justice in their Civil Rights Division. He's also an expert in the niche and complex area of redistricting law near and dear to my heart. David, welcome back to Politicology. Thanks for having me, Ron. So why don't we start with a little bit of background? Can you explain what these two laws actually do and what the Supreme Court decided in this case? Sure. So these two laws, first of all, it's important to note that these two laws were around before the 2020 election. They've been around for some time. Uh, These are not part of the new package of laws those passed in the aftermath of the 2020 election. And uh, in short, there were one of them... um, required that voters essentially vote in the correct precinct if they wanted to have their ballot counted. What it said was that if they counted, if they cast a provisional ballot in a precinct other than their home precinct, that provisional ballot would not be counted in its entirety. Um, And the second law said that an individual, a third party, could not return multiple mail ballots, a a process that's called uh, sometimes pejoratively as ballot harvesting. Mm -hmm. Um, It also can be used in a way that's very positive in the sense that you might go to a nursing home or somewhere else and pick up several ballots and return it for people who might have difficulty uh, otherwise returning their ballots. So those were two laws that were passed um, well before the 2020 election in Arizona. And they were challenged under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Section 2 is um, one of the two main provisions of the Voting Rights Act. And it basically says that anywhere in the country, you cannot pass a law that would overly burden the right to vote on account of race. Um, It can't have the purpose to overly burden the the right to vote on account of race, and it can't have the effect Hmm. of overly burdening the right right to vote on account of race. So both of those two tests are at issue here. There there isn't – it's not just intent or result. It actually deals with both. Yes, although it's primarily result. Intent was kind of an afterthought in this case and dealt like that – dealt with the Supreme Court. They dealt with it as an afterthought to some degree as opposed to – the Georgia, um, the new case that the DOJ has brought in Georgia, which is entirely an intent or purpose case, has it does not allege any results or effects. Got it. Okay. We'll get to that in a little bit. But I'd like to understand whether or not 
there was a major departure from precedent in the way the court interpreted this case. Yeah, there was somewhat of a departure from precedent, and there was somewhat of a departure from the actual text of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And I think it's really important to go back and think about what Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act says and what it does. Um, It was, of course, passed in August of 1965, signed into law by Lyndon Johnson. And what the Voting Rights Act originally was all about was giving full force and power to the 14th and 15th Amendments of the United States Constitution, which had been passed 100 years earlier, but had still not been fully in effect because of Jim Crow laws. And uh, Section 2 basically said, uh, don't pass or enforce any laws that would impede the right to vote on account of race or color. And that's really what the 15th Amendment is supposed to do. Right. And it gave the Department of Justice the power to bring lawsuits against cases along those lines and also private parties. Okay. Um, Here, uh, the uh, minority voters um, and the Democratic Party brought a lawsuit alleging a Section 2 violation in federal district court in Arizona, and they lost. And then they appealed it to the Ninth Circuit panel— a three-judge panel, and the Ninth Circuit being known as one of the more left-leaning circuits in the country. And they lost before that panel as well. They didn't present enough evidence that these two laws were really going to impede the ability of minority voters to cast a ballot. Mm. And then they requested the entire Ninth Circuit to hear it, what's called en banc, which means the entire Ninth Circuit, all of the judges on the Ninth Circuit would hear this case and vote again. Wow. And the Ninth Circuit doesn't have to um, agree to this request, okay. but they did. Which is also very common in any um, any litigation over voting rights in general, right? And uh, at least a three-judge panel. Uh, so so there's there's two kinds of cases. There's the, um, there's the initial three-judge panel. We're going to get down into the weeds here, which uh-huh. is no, I know where you like to be, Ron. So do our um, listeners. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so there's two kinds of cases that can be brought. In Section 2 cases, they are generally brought in federal district court in the jurisdiction in which the case is relevant. So here it was federal district court in, in Arizona. Under Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, um, which is the preclearance provision, if a jurisdiction, a jurisdiction can choose to either have a new law pre-cleared by the Justice Department or they can go to a court for preclearance if they, for, for whatever reason, they don't think that DOJ is going to pre-clear it. And if they go to the court, then it goes to a three-judge panel and the advantage of a three-judge panel and the reason that that's included in the Voting Rights Act is you get direct appeal to the Supreme Court from a three-judge panel. These Section 2 cases go first to the district court, then to the appellate court. Um, then you can request an en banc hearing, which they did in this case. It's usually not agreed to by the court. Um, and the, in this case, they did. And in fact, the en banc Ninth Circuit, the entire Ninth Circuit, for the first time ruled in favor of the plaintiffs in this case. That was the only ruling in favor of the plaintiffs in this in the entire history of this particular case. Wow. And um, and then it went to the United States Supreme Court, where, of course, we now know we got a 6-3 right. ruling um, uh, holding that um, the laws did not violate Section 2. And to get back to your to original precedent. question, right. yeah. Um, the Section 2 says if if a law provide if a law creates some kind of disparate impact on voters. Um, and precedent says this as well, then um, it violates Section 2, basically, a disparate impact on voters of color. Um, here, there was some evidence of it. Whether or not there was factual evidence to support 
the case, I think, is an open question because, again, the district court ruled that under established precedent, these laws did not violate Section 2, and a panel of the Ninth Circuit agreed. But the court, the Supreme Court, went beyond what it needed to do here. Okay. And it created a new standard that basically says it needs to be a significant disparate impact, which is not in the text of Section 2. Mm. And it further went on to say even a significant disparate impact could be um, overcome um, by evidence that there were alternate means to vote and that there was some almost pretextual reason for passing it, most right. notably election integrity, right? right? So uh, it, it makes it much easier for jurisdictions to pass laws that are going to have negative impacts on minority voters and to be able to justify them in court and to uphold those laws. So I have a bit of a sidebar question. I wonder if you can speak to this. I think we're used to thinking about the rhetoric of lawmaking from the bench or activist courts as being a sort of a rhetorical weapon that conservatives tend to use against liberals, at least they have for the last 10 to 20 years. And this seems to be exactly that. You have a conservative court um, essentially adding to an existing law with this new standard of significant, right? That didn't exist there before. And I wonder if you see that the same way I do. Yeah, I absolutely do. I'm so glad you asked this question because um, not surprisingly, we're very much on the same page. You're exactly right. When you look at rulings that the Supreme Court has made, particularly in the last 60 or so years, where the court inferred a right to privacy in the Constitution that wasn't actually textually in there but could be inferred to do things like allow for um, more uh, rights to choice for women, to uh, allow for access to birth control and things along those lines. Um, you similarly see, um, and, that's, and that was considered activism, you similarly see in the voting rights context an extremely activist court coming from the conservative side of things. And this goes back several years, and I think the Shelby County decision, which is the decision that in, in essence invalidated the preclearance provisions of the Voting Rights Act, Section 5, um, was an extremely activist decision. There you had a 5-4 majority, a bare majority, finding that Congress had exceeded its right to legislate under Article One of the Constitution um, and that they had not demonstrated enough to justify this law that had already been on the books for, we have to remember, nearly 50 years mm. at that point and had been upheld multiple times by the Supreme Court. And was re-ratified in 1982 or it was re-updated? It was updated and reauthorized in 1970, 1975, 1982, and again in 2006. And in 2006, the vote was 98 to zero in the Senate, and there were only about 30 or so Republicans in the House who voted against it. It was about as close to unanimous right. as you get for any kind of bill. And it was a Republican House of Representatives actually marshaled it through the House. Um, it was very bipartisan at the time. And you see the Supreme Court in 2013 almost dismissing the unanimity and the tens of thousands, I think maybe even almost 100,000 pages of record that were created. Wow. Um, and almost being dismissive of that as evidence that the political process didn't work in some ways when, of course, I think most of us would look at it and say that this is actually a process where both sides That's got actually together. a stunning achievement. Right. right. Um, especially now in context <laughs> right. that we've seen what we've seen since then. So an activist court basically um, 
rests control of Congress's ability to enforce the 14th and 15th Amendments of the Constitution away from Congress. Um, Others might say that they were really inviting Congress to come back and do this again, but um, Congress is in a very different place at that point in time. These justices are not foolish people. They're very, very smart, and they know where Congress is. And I think what we saw in the case that uh, was released last week was a continuation of that, where um, they're reading in their own requirements, going outside the text, which textualism has usually been perceived to be a conservative ideal when, in, when interpreting laws and in, um, the Constitution. And they, they went beyond that in this case. So is it fair then to see this as not only a departure from precedent, but also a departure from jurisprudence, conservative jurisprudence? Um, yeah, I think it is. I mean, I, I think we're seeing less allegiance to kind of principles and ideals. This is not textualism. No, that isn't. Um, uh, and 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 more allegiance to politics. I mean, um, putting aside the Supreme Court for a second, we all remember the lawsuit that the Texas Attorney General sought to bring shortly after the election, seeking to get the United States Supreme Court to tell other states that they could not count votes as they had already passed laws and counted them and certified their votes. That is one of the most anti-conservative, anti-federalist things you can possibly imagine. And you can and, and you could perceive if more liberal states did the same thing to Texas, the arguments they would make in the Supreme Court and, and, and the outrage they would perceive. So, so the fact that we're seeing um, kind of right-wing republicanism less tethered to kind of principled conservatism and federalist values, I think is one of the things that is leading to some of the dangers in democracy that we're seeing right now. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Before we move on to the dangers in democracy, can you help us understand the difference between what the Supreme Court said about the two voting laws in Arizona and then more broadly about voter discrimination cases under the Voting Rights Act? And in particular, what I really want to know is whether or not the standard, uh, this new standard, which means it has to be a significant level of discrimination, is measurable in any way. Does anyone know what that what might meet that standard? So the way Section 2 has been enforced for now over 50 years is you would look at a law, you look at the purpose behind the law, was it passed with a clearly discriminatory purpose? You know, back in the 60s and 70s, you would see that a little more, where it was much more clear, and you see that less so now because... Even legislators who are trying to um, make it more difficult for voters of color to exercise the franchise, they're going to be more sophisticated about how they approach it and talk about it. Um, and then, so, so you'll look at that, but then you'll also very much look at the effects. You'll look and say, um, are the methods that are targeted here, are they predominantly used, are they disproportionately used by voters of color? Um, are they likely to have a negative impact on voters of color? For instance, the provisional ballot rule, we'd look and see whether provisional ballots were being cast more heavily in minority precincts and what the rejection rates are. And that would be sufficient evidence often if, again, you'd need to have significant yeah. evidence there, um, which they didn't, the district court said they had not met the standard in Arizona. But in other cases, you might be able to present evidence that says, um, this is really going to be a problem for minority voters. You could perceive of a circumstance where uh, this was considered in Georgia recently, although it did not, did not end up being part of the final law, where they um, said no Sunday early voting. 
Mm. Um, that could be targeted at a souls to the polls movement. And that is something that culturally in Georgia was very important to the African-American community and is continuing to be important. And that might be evidence of either discriminatory purpose or discriminatory effect. You could show perhaps both yeah. in that case. Now they might be able to say, well, um, there's an integrity reason for that. We need to shut things down by Saturday to get everything ready by Tuesday. Even though we've done it for decades and had no problem with it, we now think that that's the reason. And there's this other way that they can vote. They could vote on Saturday if they want, right. and they being minority voters in this hypothetical. And that might now, under this new standard established by the Supreme Court, might be sufficient. And if I'm not mistaken, the existence of that additional modality or other option for voting actually serves as justification for uh, removing lots of other options. That's exactly right. I mean, I, I, as you can tell, I'm, I'm somewhat critical of the, of the Supreme Court's decision. Um, I, I think what, they're, what it really comes down to is, well, minority voters have the same way to vote as other voters do. Why don't they just vote like other voters do? Um, which I think is a really paternalistic, um, and, and misreads the social and historical, uh, context, which used to be used in these, in these section two cases. That's right. I mean, we know for instance, that there are communities where different modes of voting have been, um, culturally, historically, um, used. Um, for instance, ironically, male voting has been historically used predominantly by older white more conservative voters until this year. Yeah, that's right. Um, and uh, whereas early in-person voting in most of the states where I've looked at data is somewhat disproportionately used by voters of color. Yeah. So one of the central points in Alito's opinion, and he wrote the majority opinion, was that the state has a legitimate interest in stopping voter fraud. But there's an NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll that came out last week that found that 56% of respondents said that making sure that everyone who wants to vote can do so is a bigger concern than making sure that no one who is ineligible to vote votes. First of all, I'm actually troubled by the fact that it's only 56%. I would have expected a much higher number than that, but nevertheless, it's a majority. So how should this public concern about ballot access impact the calculus around election security and voter access? So it's it's a myth that has been propelled particularly by the forces that seek to make people believe there's more voter fraud than there actually is. That voter fraud and voter access are somehow in conflict with each other. That the easier it is to vote, the easier it must be to commit fraud, and fraud will be rampant. A couple of things we know just as a factual matter. Voter fraud exists. The amount of voter fraud is not zero, but it is pretty darn pretty close, close to, to zero. zero. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is, yeah. it is very, very small. The Heritage Foundation itself, which has been one of the um, key authors of a lot of the um, laws seeking to justify restrictions on the vote on the basis of voter fraud. Um, they themselves have a database that goes back to 1980 looking at billions of votes counted and cast. And they have a total of about a thousand cases they have uh, noted during that time. That's the Heritage Foundation itself. Wow. The Bush DOJ looked into voter fraud 
in um, during the time when I was there in uh, in the W. Bush DOJ and uh, could not find any evidence of significant voter fraud. The Trump Presidential Advisory Commission on Election Integrity disbanded without discovering any evidence of significant voter fraud. And, and of be course, assured, they looked real hard. Th- they did. Um, <laughs> and uh, and then of course. The attorney general under Trump, Barr, himself said he saw no evidence uh, significant, evidence of significant, significant voter fraud. So the, we know how much voter fraud is out there. It's very little. And, but we also know it's not a bad thing to have s- checks and balances in the place to, to communicate integrity in the system and make people know that if there is a problem, we're going to detect it. For instance, we, we do detect some voter fraud. And when we do, it is prosecuted. It is dealt those, with. Yeah. Those yeah. people go to jail. Um, and, and here the, the irony is that by reducing opportunities for people to cast ballots early in person or by mail, by de- disincentivizing that process, integrity is actually getting worse because the more that voting is, takes place over a series of days in advance of the close of the polls, the more likely it is that we'll detect some kind of potential fraud in the system more likely a uh, mechanical or technical malfunction or some kind of cyber event. Um, those are all things we, it's much better to detect those 10 days in advance of the election than 11 a.m. on election day. And uh, what we're seeing in states right now is laws being passed that are really disincentivizing the kind of early voting and integrity measures that we'd want to see to make sure that we have the most secure system we can. Okay, so we've talked about the Shelby County case before. When you put the Shelby County decision with this decision from last week, it seems that with Section 5 essentially gutted, preclearance not required, and Georgia now doing some really egregious things in its voting laws and the DOJ suing over that, what is left of Section 2 now? And is, the, is, it, is it simply that the bar is much, much higher and... If so, I, I know you know we're trying to get at this recognized standard on whether there is one. I think my question is really in two parts. In the bringing of this case before this decision, it seemed that there was general agreement that that it was bad to suppress votes and you had to be very, very careful of running afoul of Section 2. It seems to me now, post-decision, Republicans have a green light to do lots of lots of bad things, or at least greener than it was before. So in the first part, was it a strategic error, do you think, for Democrats to bring this particular case, given the provisions in Arizona, um, when there probably were far more egregious examples of uh, voter suppression that they could have used? Um, and going forward, how is this going to change prosecutors' strategy in bringing litigation against the states who are who are basically moving the ball further down the field uh, in, in terms of voter suppression, like in Georgia. So I, so first I, I want to point out when Section 5 was a really effective tool in preventing discriminatory laws from ever getting into effect because they couldn't unless they got pre-cleared. And the burden was on the jurisdiction to prove that they were not discriminatory. It was an incredibly powerful Mm. law. And in 2013 in the Selby County case, what we saw is the Supreme Court, by striking down the coverage formula, saying which states were covered under that, effectively invalidated Section 5. Section 5 
no longer exists for all intents and purposes right now unless Congress finds a new way to establish it. And there was a, there have been bills that have been uh, introduced to do that. Um, Section 2 was a little bit different. It was never easy to bring a Section 2 case. Section 2 required the plaintiffs or the DOJ to prove by a preponderance of the evidence that the law was discriminatory. And that... Um, that burden of proof was very, very important. So I want to make it clear that the, the state still had the ability to pass laws. It was just that if someone thought those laws were discriminatory, they had the opportunity to go into court and prove that they were discriminatory. But presumably, the, the existence of that law and the precedent that it was bound by had an impact on behavior at the state legislative level and really elections workers all around the country. But both Section 2 and Section 5 worked in a very prophylactic way to prevent the worst kinds of discrimination. Now, there were always laws that were somewhat in the gray area, or there were some times when lawmakers would say, we don't care, we're going to pass this anyway. But there are examples where even voter ID laws and things like that were pre-cleared. The Clinton Justice Department pre-cleared a voter ID law in Louisiana in the late 90s that allowed for an alternative if someone for, for some reason or another didn't have an ID. So that no one was going to be turned away. And that worked great in Louisiana and they had no problem with it. Over 98% of all the laws submitted for preclearance to the DOJ were pre-cleared. Um, the, the effect of Section 5 not only as, as a prophylactic, but also once that was pre-cleared, in some ways, lawmakers at the county and state level really liked it because it was almost a stamp of approval. Um, and Section 2 now also worked in a way to prevent the worst excesses of um, partisanship and even racism from infecting the voting process. I don't think there's any question now that um, lawmakers are going to feel that there is more of an open season for them to um, edge closer and closer to the line. And um, even if they don't necessarily think they're being racist in doing so, they might think they're doing it for partisan reasons. Um, but uh, there's no question now that minority voters' voting rights are, are a little more in peril this week than they were last. Because it really takes even the flimsiest of pretexts in order to... Um enact something that's probably going to be defensible. Right. I mean, it's it, the, the, the idea that almost anything can be justified by election integrity. For those of us that work in election administration, we know what actually creates election integrity. Um, and there are things that are really important. It is important to make sure that the person who is supposed to be voting is the person who's voting. But states all have that in they place already. already. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they yeah. do a really good job of it. Yeah. There need to be ways to detect whether someone might be committing mail voter fraud or yeah. something like that. There are ways to detect that. Yes. We know how to do that. That's how we detected yes. the North Carolina um, uh, 8 congressional district um, election fraud uh, scheme. Um, Perhaps the best evidence of that being true is that there has been no significant evidence of, of widespread voter fraud. That's exactly right. <laughs> and even when there's a mistake yeah. that could create a problem in the election, I mean, we're looking at the New York uh, City mayoral race right, right. now. Yeah. A really bad mistake that shouldn't have happened. Really bad PR for ranked choice voting. I, I, we could get into that. Yeah, maybe yeah. Another, another conversation. But, um, but regardless, the main takeaway I have from that is it was discovered immediately. It was completely transparent how it was. And because we have paper ballots there, which we didn't three years ago, 
um, we can now reconstruct. We'll, we will get the right result in New York. It's going to take a little more time. Yeah. But um, and there are going to be those election deniers that try to leverage that to create more doubt about our system. Yeah. But the checks and balances we have in, the, in place in our country are about as strong as they've ever been. They are as strong as they've ever been. Yeah. And ironically, we're now seeing um, the false perception otherwise being used as a pretext for laws that are going to make it much more difficult for some perhaps targeted voters not to vote. Right. Okay. So now I want to talk about this fight going forward. And let's start with the prosecutions that uh, that the Biden Justice Department has promised. So uh, we've seen these new anti-democracy laws pass in legislatures around the country. Um, we've seen commentators talk about challenging the laws in courts. And um, and you mentioned the the Georgia case that the DOJ is bringing. After last week's decision, is that still a viable path for defending voting rights? Um, and how does that change? You were a prosecutor in the DOJ doing this stuff. So how would this change your your strategy as a prosecutor in bringing these cases? Well, it obviously makes it a lot more difficult. And you've got to pick and choose your cases a lot better because a lot of these cases are going to end up before the United States Supreme Court. Um, voting rights cases have a tendency to do that. The case I worked most closely, I, that I, I led litigation in a Georgia a statewide redistricting in the 2000 round Georgia versus Ashcroft, that went to the U.S. Supreme Court. These cases tend to go to the U.S. Supreme Court and six justices just told you how they felt about voting rights enforcement. Um, and obviously there's no appeal from that. Right. So you have to think very, very careful about, carefully about that. I do want to make one other very important sure. point, though. As, as much as I used to be a, a voting rights prosecutor in the DOJ, and as much as litigation is important to protecting voting rights, it is the last line of defense. Okay. It is not the first line of defense. The work that so many are doing around the country to help bring about processes that have integrity and that allow for full access, the work that people are doing in the state legislatures and at the county level. And by the way, many of those people who are doing this work are Republicans. I mean, this is something we lose track of so much. If you look at Secretary Raffensperger in Georgia, Secretary Sagaski in Nevada, um, Philadelphia City Commissioner Al Schmidt. It's funny, Barbara's an old friend in oh, Nevada. that's great. Yeah. I just saw her a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> She's terrific. Um, and, um, and you look at what the Maricopa County Board right now, four out of five of them Republicans, the Maricopa County Recorder, a Republican, are doing, they're working really hard to ensure a system that has maximum integrity that does not infringe upon the right to vote for any eligible citizen. And that work is the first line of defense. Um, and uh, I, I just have a ton of respect for the people, whether they're election administrators, um, whether they're in swing states or not, whether they're advocates um, who are doing that work right now, because that honestly, the best case scenario has always been, and it's especially true now, is never to get to litigation in the first place. Yeah, that's a really good, I'm, I'm glad you made that point. Um, our listeners are overwhelmingly democratic, and I think it's important for them to hear uh, that as well. Um, okay, so that's that's litigation. And we can sort of set that aside because I think that the general takeaway is it's going to be a whole lot harder to maneuver through this ruling in the courts, which brings us to Congress. and. Uh, in her dissent, Justice Kagan accused the court of rewriting the law. We just discussed that. She wrote, this court has no right to remake Section 2. Maybe some think that vote suppression is a relic of history, and so the need for a potent Section 2 has come and gone. But Congress gets to make that call. How much pressure 
does this decision put on Congress to enact voting rights legislation and reset a standard around who gets to vote? Well, I think it puts a significant amount of pressure, but I don't know if that's relevant. Okay. Um, I, I, I think, um, not surprisingly, I agree with Justice Kagan um, in her assessment. And um, now in two cases, Shelby County and in um, what we call the Brnovich case after the right. Attorney General of Arizona. That's this one we're discussing. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, it, the, the majority of the Supreme Court has substantially rewritten laws and replaced the judgment of Congress with their own. And I think there's an important point in that that's not the proper role for the court. Um, but I think there's a second point, which is, again, the justices aren't living in a vacuum. They can see what's happening around the country. They can see what's happening in Congress. And they know Congress is not what Congress was in 2006 when it nearly unanimously passed their last reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act. It's questionable whether the um, a bill like that yeah. could even get to the floor of the United States Senate now. Um, and, uh, and they also know, and, and, um, Justice Roberts said this in Shelby County decision in 2013, that the country had changed a lot, that we, um, he had a very optimistic view of where we had come. And of course he wasn't entirely wrong. We absolutely had changed in the 50 years. Yes. Um, but in the last eight years, we've seen how fragile that progress can be. And to act as if you're intentionally blind to, the backsliding we've seen over the last eight years and perhaps even longer, and the dysfunction in Congress, knowing that Congress is, is extremely unlikely to be able to politically come together and pass some kind of fix for this, I think it's a little bit disingenuous. And I, I, I you know, to, to, replace, to replace the judgment of Congress with your own and then to wash your hands of it and say, well, Congress could always come back with another law is, is not quite being completely honest with the American people right now. Okay. So speaking of Congress, and we were talking about this before, uh, before the recording, I want to, I want to hear what you might say to the, the, the activists, the people who say, um, we should now is the time to remove the filibuster. This is, if there is any cause worth, worth breaking it over, it's this one and come what may when the Republican, right. Um, uh, what would you say to those people, I'm, I might count myself among them, that if ever there were a cause that, that demanded this kind of action, it would, be, it would be protecting the right to vote. And so I wonder what you would think about that. In, in the abstract, I, I agree with that. You have the, you have the strongest uh, argument to eliminate the filibuster in the area that is foundational for our entire democracy, which is voting rights. I'd also say, though, that there are there are laws that have been considered by um, by Congress in this last session, this current session, um, like HR one S one, that were written prior to the recent challenges we're facing. They were written largely in 2018 and 2019. Um, they did not address a lot of the election subversion and other issues that we're seeing currently. But most importantly, I don't know that HR one or S one in the last two Congresses ever had 50 votes. And if you don't have 50 votes, the filibuster is not particularly relevant. And that's just math. That's not saying that it's not a, it's, it, it's, it, that's not saying the filibuster is good or bad, but you need at least 50 votes with a vice president of your own party to even get to the point where you discuss the filibuster. So um, one of the things that I think has been most frustrating for those of us who work in this space is um, 
both parties are having conversations that are not meeting anywhere. They are, they're having their conversations within their own silos. The Democrats are fashioning bills just by Democrats and their allies. And then they're proposing them in Congress, not having any Republican input. And not surprisingly, Republicans To Joe Manchin's chagrin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Republicans are doing the same thing, of course. They're just not in the majority, so they don't have as much power to bring stuff forward. Um, I know for a fact there are people of goodwill on both sides. This is not a, an issue of equivalence by any means. Right. This, the, the majority of people, of Republicans in the House and the Senate right now are not willing to have the conversations necessary. They're not willing to vote for a January 6th commission. I, yeah. Um, but there are people who are willing to have those conversations, but we're not having those cross-partisan conversations, which is why I think you start, you, you hear the concern from someone like Joe Manchin, whether you like him or dislike him or don't agree with his stance on these issues issues. I'll give him credit. He has been consistent. He, he has, has been consistent. He has never said, I might vote for S1 or H. He has said he will not vote for a single party bill on these issues. And he, you know, there was some, you know, there, there he wrote an op-ed about a month ago that said he wasn't going to vote for S1. Um, he had said the same thing two months before and four months before. He had been very, very consistent. It wasn't a surprise. Um, so I think- And then he did vote to bring it to the floor. Ultimately, yes. yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. he was he, he was, was open vote, debate. Still going to vote against it, but he did move to to vote to bring it to the floor for debate, which also failed. But. Right, that's exactly right. So I think I think there's some really good art, uh, discussions to be had around filibuster reform, um, but in order to get there, you need 50 you votes, need and we didn't have it. We didn't have it. Okay, so let's now zoom out and and where do you think the the fight goes from here given even the i hate to say it futility of fighting this in congress how should good thinking people around the country who are legitimately concerned for uh the 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 the, the erosion of democracy in america I, I don't know how to put it any other way how should we be thinking about stopping that you know i i I've always perceived myself to be an optimist and trying to find the best way to look at these things and try to find paths forward and people on of goodwill who might disagree to, to work with. But I'll be the first to admit I'm as scared as I have ever been about American democracy. I am more scared now than I was on January 6th um, or November 3rd or in the months leading up to November 3rd. Um, I'm working harder than I've ever worked before. And honestly, people who work in elections will tell you you're not supposed to be working this hard in the summer of an odd number of years. This is supposed to be the time that you kind of take a step back and start planning for the future and start looking forward to what's going to happen in an even numbered year. And um, everyone I know who works in the election space is, um, is worried on both sides, by the way. I, many Republicans and conservatives that I talk to are worried, um, as well as Democrats and liberals. Um, and election officials I talk to are worried. Um, they are under stress, threats worse than ever before. Um, I, I, see an, I see an incentive structure in particularly the Republican Party and in the primary system right now, and there was just an article in the New York Times about this, about where, where election deniers see reward in continuing to delegitimize our democracy. Um, I don't have a lot of hope that this Congress will get together and pass um, laws that are urgently necessary right now. We have never had more of a need for some kind of clear federal standards and rules 
And they might not be what a lot of folks on the left want. They might only get at a few things. They might prevent the kind of chaos that we might see in 2022 and 2024 where partisans seek to overturn legitimate votes, inject themselves into the process, and we're seeing legislatures seemingly empower them to do that. Um, that that's a real concern. It's going to take um, – I don't know if we can have the kind of cross-partisan discussions with people of goodwill. I mean a real key player here are people like Liz Cheney. Um, and it's really difficult for people on the left to accept her as a key player. But we've got to get to the point where we, where we bind each other together as citizens with a fundamental – agreement about American democracy, and then fight out the policy issues later. And the fact that Liz Cheney is um, now a pariah within her own party, despite her unquestionable conservative credentials, um, is, is really troubling to me. I mean, we've got we've to stop viewing elections as a game we play to see who wins and the reward for winning is they get to govern for a couple of years. That's not what elections are. Um, when more people vote and the person you voted for lost, that's good. That's legitimizing American democracy. That is a bulwark against international autocracy and dictatorship. This is the whole ballgame. Yeah. I mean, this is a national security it, issue. It, it, it is. It, yes. I mean, we it, it, we don't have to, it is not a crazy hypothetical to think that what happens in 2022 or 2024, if Republicans in some states refuse to certify and send um, Democratic uh, election victories to Congress, um, what happens if Democrats decide that the incentive structure has been so skewed, they have no choice but to play on the same playing field as Republicans. We forget in 2024, the vice president who's going to be presiding over that session is not going to be Mike Pence. It's going to be Kamala Harris. Yes. And what happens if in 2022 or 2024, a majority Democratic House, a majority Democratic Senate, which is what we have right now, decides that they are not going to accept the seating of members from states that they viewed as having some kind of questions in their election process. That is the road we're starting to head down. And what might our adversaries overseas in China and Russia and elsewhere do during a time of intense chaos post-election where we can't even get our governing system in order? And by the way, we're seeing this already in smaller tidbits right now. Arizona, they had they couldn't pass a budget for a long time. Texas adjourns without a quorum right in their legislature. Congress can't get basic bills to the floor. Um, we're far past warning signs, yeah. as Mike Madrid recently said. That's exactly yeah. right. And this is this is where this is where we're headed right now. And this is not a game. This is you know we might be looking back at the you know 2016 to 2024 period of time as the erosion of American democracy and the end of America as the great bulwark of democratic power in the world. I think we saw that underscored when President Biden, during his first joint address to Congress, um, noted his conversation with Xi Jinping. And he recounted, I think, the conversation, I think it, I think he said that um, foreign adversaries are asking uh, how long. He said, America is back, right? And they say, but for how long? 
And our allies. And our allies are saying that. Our allies are saying the same thing. I I mean, this is a fundamental aspect of Chinese Communist Party propaganda for decades has been that democracy cannot serve citizens of a country, that you need a central authoritarian government to do that. That has been the primary argument of communism and and, um, under the Soviet Union and and in China. And that has never really taken hold here in the United States because we've been able to make democracy work, even though it's been right. messy. You know, yeah. it, it's um, slow, messy, tedious. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, we now have people in this country and perhaps a majority of one political party making that case better now than the Chinese Communist Party ever could. And that should worry us. Um, and, you know, I, I still have some hope that um, – you know, I, I don't – regardless of whether you're a Democrat or Republican, you should not want people to leave the Republican Party. You should not want one party untethered from reality and principle. Um, we work best when we have two parties representing different principled ideologies that can hold each other accountable and maybe moderate the worst excesses of either party, right? Um, we don't have that right now and we're not close to having that. I could ask either substantively or, or sort of strategically, should this be the number one issue in the 2022 midterms? Do you think Democrats should make this a, a major campaign issue around the country? So I'm not a political operative. Yeah. You have so many smart ones on. <laughs> I'd probably leave this to them. I, so I don't know. The sense is, by the way, Susan Susan Del Percio and I talked about this last week, and uh, she noted uh, what Wisconsin is is doing right now, uh, and the governor there making this a, a major issue for 2022, at least in Wisconsin. And her take, uh, just for what it's worth, is that um, uh, she's she's called it interesting. And that it could leave Democrats unguarded on multiple flanks, you know, on on more cultural issues if they just focus on that. And I think that's I think that's legitimate. But it does feel to me, you know, there's this emotion inside that sort of, and maybe not everybody thinks this is not a good uh, rallying cry, maybe for moderate voters. I I don't know, but there is there is a very intense loss aversion trigger when I, when someone tells me. American democracy is on the brink. Yeah, and I and I first of all, Susan's as smart as they come, so I'd ne- I'd never disagree with Susan. Um, I I'd also say that um, I I it should be the main issue. It, it the, the that, foundational yeah. aspects of American democracy should be the main issue. But I also recognize I work in my own world, and you know, other issues, especially relating to the coronavirus response and our economy and jobs and the border and other things are going to come up. Um, I, I, one thing I feel fairly certain of is that whether American democracy perseveres should be a bigger issue in the 2022 election cycle than say critical race theory. But, um, you know, I, I just don't know how this is all going to play out. I'll leave it to the political consultants to figure yeah. that out. But I, <laughs> but I do think that we need to understand that if um, we are at an inflection point right now and we're not past it, we are in the middle of it. And there is adequate time to work. And by the way, that means – that doesn't mean getting more partisan in many right. ways. In some ways, it means getting less partisan. Yeah. In some ways, it means breaking through your silos, the, pe- the places you receive media, and trying to listen to others, trying to find people with whom you disagree but you know are good fundamentally um, 
Uh, you know, this is, this is something that I, I think we do too rarely and we need to be able to find a way to talk to people with whom we might disagree on some policy issues. Yes. I think that's a really good, uh, lesson, uh, for many Democrats, especially many democratic listeners of the show, um, to find the allies with an R next to their name who are standing up for, uh, for, for this cause because politics is inherently a game of addition and not subtraction. And this feels like if ever, if ever there were a time to learn that lesson, I know it's frustrating. I know you have to hold your nose sometimes because some of these people also share very abhorrent views on other things. But, but if we don't get this right, if we don't protect this, we, we, we lose the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, the solution is not becoming a one party right. country, yeah, right? I, I mean, it's, yeah. it's not and realistic. Idealism, and idealism is also can be your enemy. Uh, on on both sides, but in particular, um, in particular on Democrats uh, on the Democrat side, that like you, you like you said, we're not going to get everything we want here, right? And it's a live to fight another day. Situation. And, and I and I do think we are. I mean, I've been talking about this as triage right now. Yeah. I mean, we're not. You know, talk about the work you're doing at uh, at, at the nonprofit. Right. So uh, I mean. We have worked, we've been around since 2016. Um, people can go to electioninnovation.org or follow me at Becker David J or at electioninnov, which is our, uh, our Twitter handles. Um, and we do a lot of work to improve how voter registration is done. We've partnered with a, a, an effort I led, I, I, I created, helped create called the Electronic Registration Information Center, which um, now helps about 30 states plus DC register more voters and keep their lists more up to date. We work in the areas of cybersecurity and audits, helping states move to paper ballots, helping them audit those paper ballots. We did a lot of work in Georgia this last session. And we work particularly closely with election officials at the state and local level all around the country. I, I just hosted a meeting for um, several secretaries of state um, out in California and uh, of both parties, about evenly divided. And um, honestly, uh, that work might be among the most important. The, the, the professionals who run elections, and there are so many of both parties out there, are under siege right now. They are not only receiving death threats, they are not only under incredible stresses, they are now seeing legislatures in some places kind of criminalizing professional behavior, applying fines in some cases. There was a story in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago about um, uh, Iowa election officials quitting because they do not want to be at risk of fines just for serving their voters. In Florida, similar situations are coming about. Um, we are seeing more and more election deniers say they are going to run for um, office as secretaries of state that. in Nevada, of course, in Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, many places. Um, and so that work, working with election officials and also working with members of the media and, and trying to keep them informed about what's going on, make sure that people understand um, – uh, where there are real problems. And to some degree, that means pushing back on excesses on both sides. You know, it, every every law that's passed is not um, Jim Crow 2.0. Um, and it's important to be able to differentiate them because there are some laws that are truly al that bad or almost that bad, right? Um, and to be able to say um, the law that was passed in Georgia was a step backwards, which I have said. It was not as bad as the law that was originally proposed, and it was not nearly as bad as the law that Texas is going to be trying to um, push in the in the next week. Um, so 
being able to prioritize and put our attention in certain places, I think is really important. That's the kind of work we try to do. And to support the election officials and professionalism, we have never been more professional in this in this field. And um, it's unfortunate that many people, particularly supporters of the former president, have exactly the opposite false impression. Do you have a uh, a list of uh, maybe if you don't, maybe we can do a follow up or maybe Politicology can publish something like this, but a list of the of the election officials who are up for re-election, who our listeners can support, can find out more information about. Is that something that the center does? So it's pretty, we don't put that out, okay. but but it's pretty easy to tell people. Um, the vast majority of secretaries of state are up for election in 2022. Okay. Uh, they tend to be in the off cycles. Um, there are... Um, most of the incumbent secretaries, whether they be Republican or Democrat, have done a remarkably good job. And I think it's really important because we often view this through a partisan lens. Mm -hmm. um, if we're Democrats, we believe we should be always supporting Democrats right. for Secretary that of State. Not the case. And Republicans similarly. Yeah. Um, I will tell you, I, I am incredibly grateful for the work of people like Raffensperger and Sagaski and Schmidt and Republicans around the country. Another one I'd love to point out is Kim Wyman, Secretary of State of Washington, a Republican, a incredibly blue state, a state that has had Republican secretaries exclusively since the mid '60s, which wow. is really strange. That is very strange. Even as Democrats are winning yeah. every other uh, uh, state race, and. By virtue of the politics of that state, someone like Secretary Wyman needs to get a lot of Biden-Wyman voters or Clinton-Wyman voters, mm -hmm. and she does. Mm. And that is in the best tradition of people looking for professionalism and competence. And that's not to say her opponents weren't. That's not what that was about. But she is a former county election official. She loves that job. She's one of the national leaders in this space. Um, she is a conservative. She is a Republican. Um, as those are defined within the state of Washington, right. of course. It right. might be different right. than they're defined right. in other states. Um, and that's um, – look for people like that. Look for people who might not have the right letter next to their name that you might disagree with on some other issues, but who you know will never put their thumb on the scale to benefit their party or their candidate, that they will count the votes and enfranchise every eligible voter. There are so many people. In Nevada, for instance, there will be an open seat. Uh, Secretary Sagaski is term limited out. Mm. She was the only Republican to win statewide office in she's 2018. She's just terrific. And, and, yeah. and she has um, – she's been through a lot. I mean she has stood by for the idea of professional um, – nonpartisan election administration in that office. And um, similarly, look for people who you might not agree with because ultimately, if they certify an election for a candidate you did agree with, that's going to be incredibly valuable. I mean, we all know Secretary Raffensperger's name right now. I've known him for a few years, but I guarantee nobody, nobody else who's did. listening knew who, <laughs> knew who he was a year that's ago, right? right? Um, yeah. and, and that's because he was a hero for democracy. Um, and not because he did anything in favor of Democrats. He simply stood up to threats and did his job. Um, and and I think as most of most listeners know, I mean, his his wife was still getting death threats as of oh uh, a couple of months ago. Wow. Um, so this is this is something. Look for those people. They are heroes. They don't. You don't necessarily have to agree with them on tax policy, but. You want professionals who are Because they don't going, get to impact tax yes. policy. <laughs> the fact that we now have election deniers who are yeah. running on a platform of election denial on the idea that they will overturn the will of the voters. I mean, a story just came out um, 
today in the Post about, uh, and from an Arizona local um, uh, reporter, about how there was a lot of pressure from Arizona elected officials and Rudy Giuliani and others to actually get Arizona election officials to stop counting ballots, legitimately cast ballots from eligible voters and to stop counting them because they were worried that the late the, the ballots that they were counting later, the batches that they were counting later, mm-hmm. under laws that the Republicans had themselves established, that those were going for the candidate they didn't support. If that is that is as banana republic and anti-democratic as you could possibly get. Yeah. The fact that we had people, Republicans and Democrats in the state of Arizona say no. That's not what American democracy is about. That is a violation of our duty, our sworn oaths. We are going to continue to count every eligible voter's ballot. Um, that seems so basic. That's our civic immune system. Yeah. Um, and we need to support those people. And sometimes yeah. they're going to be of the other party. Yeah. David, I'm mindful of the time. Uh, any last words before I let you go? No, I hope – I always feel like I, I lately I've been a little pessimistic about yeah. things. But I do think that programs like this and – um, other efforts to really explain to people that we're in we're in a, a period of crisis right now, but there is a path forward. Um, it requires us to be the best versions of ourselves, which I'm not always, but I, I, I try the best I can. Um, and uh, and to try to find ways. Again, our our, our democracy is in triage right now. This is not the time that we prescribe it a workout regimen to be perfect. This is the time where we make sure we can get it out of the emergency room. And then in subsequent years, we'll still have an opportunity to make this a more perfect union, and we will. But right now, we have some fundamental things that we need to work on, and that might not satisfy everybody, but it will enable us to have those discussions on another day. David Becker, come back soon. So great to be here with you, Ron. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you have any questions for us, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. You can also help us by rating and reviewing the show wherever you get your podcasts and by sharing this conversation. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.